If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 7. Psalm 7. Several years ago, a PBS documentary presented the case of Paco Larinaga. Two girls went missing from a mall in the Philippines on July 16, 1997. And at that time that they went missing, Paco was 350 miles away on another island in the Philippines in Manila at school. At the trial of the, uh, to prosecute the one guilty for um, murdering these two girls, 35 classmates and teachers testified that they had seen Paco with them in Manila that night and early the next morning. They even had pictures and school records to support their claim. In addition, there was a security log from Paco's apartment building that showed him coming and going to verify his claims. Despite all of this, Paco was arrested. He was tried before a judge who repeatedly fell asleep during the trial and was ultimately convicted of murder. Now, when you hear that true life story, that kind of Bald injustice often makes our skin crawl. It makes us angry and indignant that something like that would be able to happen in a civilized society. But perhaps a deeper question might be this, what if you were Paco? What if you were the one going through that experience? What if you were the one suffering such injustice? How would you feel? Where would you turn? Where would you go? How would you deal with the experience? This morning, we'll want to seek to answer those questions as we think about a man named David, a king who went through a similar experience as Paco, in which he records something of it, at least, in Psalm 7. So let me encourage you to follow along as I read. A Shigion of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. O Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let them trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust." Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. O Lord, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and upon his own skull his violence descends. I will give thanks. I will give to the Lord the thanks due his righteousness. I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. May God bless the reading of his word. 
In the superscription, we read that this is a Shigion of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. In other words, David is telling us how he came to write this song. What were the circumstances under which he composed this prayer and sang it to the Lord? The psalm was provoked by a man named Cush who was a Benjamite, which means he was from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, we do not know, the, however, the exact circumstances under which the psalm was written. We don't have any account, at least formally, of a man named Cush in the rest of the Bible. Nevertheless, we know that he is being, uh, David is being falsely accused by this man, and the result is that David's life is threatened. Now, knowing where Cush was from, that he was from the tribe of Benjamin, it's not hard to use a little bit of deductive reasoning and a little imagination to at least come up with a likely scenario. So let's think about these things for just a minute. Cush was from the tribe of Benjamin, and so was Saul, the king who preceded, preceded rather, David on the throne in Israel. And we know from the scriptures that while still king, Saul was able to see both the leadership skills of David and the love of the people for David more than himself. And that caused him to be quite jealous. In fact, that jealousy gave way to hatred, even madness. And Saul used his tribe's sense of loyalty and allegiance to try to have David killed. In 1 Samuel 22, Saul said to his servants, Here now, people of Benjamin, will David the son of Jesse, in other words, not the tribe of Benjamin, will, will this son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, all that you have conspired against me? In other words, those that want to make David king, he says, he's not the king. He's a shepherd from a field. He's not even our tribe. And are you going to follow him? How can he make, uh, make good things happen for you? How can he give you fields and vineyards and make you commanders? James Johnson reminds us in his commentary that the tribe of Benjamin was Saul's power base and remained loyal to his family. When Saul was killed by the Philistines, Israel was divided by a civil war between those who followed David and those who were loyal to Saul. At the front lines of that conflict was the tribe of Benjamin. Even after David had had a long reign as established king, at least some of the Benjamites still held a grudge against him. Towards the end of David's reign, they used the rebellion of his own son Absalom to publicly denounce him and even to attempt to coup and bring back the throne, not from Judah's tribe where David was from, but from their own tribe of Benjamin. All of this illustrates the bad blood between David and the tribe of Benjamin and helps put this psalm into context. At the same time, one incident gives us perhaps a further insight as to when this might have taken place in David's life. Remember, David or Saul was rather trying to kill David before he even took the throne, and such became the fury of Saul that David literally had to get out of town. Uh, there were some warriors who believed he was God's choice to be the future king. They gathered around him, but they traveled around the hillside and around the wilderness on the run from Saul and his army. And David said, as he's about to flee into the night to uh, one of Saul's sons, Jonathan, David's best friend, he said to him, what have I done? What is my guilt and what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? It's quite possible that as he's asking this to Jonathan and then not getting any substantive answer but running out into the night that perhaps it's at this very time, this time as he's on the run from Saul that he is composing this prayer and offering it to God. It's even possible this man Cush had accused David of trying to rebel or even kill 
King Saul in order to fuel resentment and, and rouse the tribe of Benjamin to chase after David and kill him. Either way, David feels the indignity of the injustice of his circumstances. Truth be told, not many of us will ever have to flee for our life. Not many of us will, will be in the exact kind of situation that, that David was in, yet all of us probably at some point or another will experience false accusation. It may cost us a reputation, it may cost us a friendship, it may even cost us a job. But even then, there are dozens upon dozens of other injustices that we could experience that we might face in a society stained by sin. And the question is, what are we going to do in those situations? How will we respond to those things? Depending on who you talk to and what the specifics are, you might receive all kinds of advice, some of it wise and helpful, but most of it foolish. In the end, the one thing that you ought always to do is to bring your problem before God. Not as a last resort, but as a first response. We ought always to pray to God in light of our struggles and difficulties, not least of which those injustices that we or the rest of God's people experience. And so when we do that, David offers five components that ought to be a part of our prayer. Five ways in which uh, we ought to go before God in prayer. First, we see that we ought to cry out for God's deliverance. We ought to cry out for God's deliverance. This is how he begins in verses 1 and 2. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. Now, we need to remember that David is not saying, I'm going to trust in you as my refuge. No, he's saying that I have trusted in the Lord God as my refuge. This is something that he's done in the past. In fact, this is the lifestyle that he lives. He continually puts his faith and his confidence in God as his saving refuge, the one in whom he finds safety and security. But more than that, he looks to him to find salvation and deliverance. In fact, apart from the Lord, David says there's no one to deliver him. He pictures his enemies like a wild animal, a lion seeking to tear him apart. Now, most of us, especially in this day of cable television, back in the day it was only on PBS, uh, but now you can find on any station some documentary that's going to show an actual lion going after hunting its prey and devouring it out in the fields of Africa somewhere. And despite how terrifying that might seem to us, notice what David says. It's not his physical life, but his soul that he is worried about being torn apart. False accusations and their consequences can have a devastating effect on us emotionally and spiritually. And he says the Lord alone is able to save him from this, to deliver him from this. This has all the earmarks of one who is not a stranger to God's throne in prayer. These verses, this initial crying out to God has all the hallmarks of one who regularly puts his confidence in God and goes to him, who knows God as king. Sometimes we get confused and think that Lord is just simply another title. But if you notice here, this is not just Lord isn't a title. You'll notice it's in those small capitals. That means this is God's covenant name. This is Yahweh, my God. David is saying, I'm not putting my trust in anything else, any of the other false gods in the surrounding nations, even some of the false gods that people in Israel are putting their confidence in. You, O Yahweh, you, O Lord, are my God, and in you am I putting confidence. 
As we pray, we have to ask ourselves, do we have that kind of intimacy of knowledge, that kind of experience of ongoing trust, that our first response is to cry out to God in prayer? I fear that for many people, some even within the church, that God is more like that celebrity that we've read about, we've perhaps seen in action on television or in movies, but we actually know very little personally. We only know Him from afar. That's not the way that David calls out to God. Our prayers like that are like little more than anonymous letters being sent out to a governor we've never met asking for uh, a last-minute pardon. But what David shows is a loyal servant appealing to his king. And for us, God's people in Christ, we ought to be able to cry out in deliverance like a child calling out to a loving father. In the midst of injustice, as we pray, we ought to cry out for God's deliverance. But David also shows us that we ought to care about God's gaze. We ought to care about God's gaze. In verses 3 through 5, David says, O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. By implication, David is insisting on his innocence. He is saying, there is no wrong in my hands, and in fact, if there is, then I invite you, O God, to judge me. He, he, he is saying, look, I am opening myself up. I am letting you in. I want you to search me and try me and examine me to see if there is any guilt related to what's being said about me. If there is something there, if I am at fault, then let my enemies overtake me. Let a curse be upon me. Let judgment fall. That's a scary prayer. And in fact, I wonder if we've ever thought about that some of the times that we might have experienced something that we feel is completely unjust when in reality we have conveniently forgot our part in the conflict. It's very easy for us to uh, re receive some slight, uh, some comment, some bad attitude, uh, some pass over at work, and immediately begin to be indignant, forgetting that maybe what happened to us is not commiserate with what we did, but we've kind of egged the situation on. We've kind of pushed buttons and provoked the very thing that has come upon us. And in reality, we don't have a right standing to be as indignant as we want to be. David is saying... There is nothing in my life, nothing that would bear the fruit of this kind of false accusation against me. He is allowing God's gaze to focus and penetrate in the very depths of his heart on this issue. And he, he says, you'll find nothing there. You know, I grew up in the 80s, which makes me a child of the Cold War, at least the end part of it. And uh, as I was thinking about this, it made me uh, a little bit nostalgic for those things, um, the good and the bad. Uh, when I was younger, there was this kind of constant suspicion and fear of the Soviets and what they might be planning or what they might be doing. Uh, at the same time, I was old enough that about the time I was in junior high going into high school, uh, we saw the Berlin Wall fall, symbolic of the fall of communism. Uh, we saw our president trump um, that of the Soviet empire. And during all of that kind of uh, Cold War conflict, I'd often heard from more than one person, interestingly enough, that America's spy satellites were so sophisticated that we could read off the ingredients from a gum wrapper on the streets of Moscow. 
Now, I have no idea if that's true or not. It'd be cool if it was. But consider the gaze of God, which is far more penetrating than any sophisticated spy satellite. Under his searching eyes, nothing is hidden. Nothing is covered up. Nothing is unseen. All is laid bare before him. And when we think about going before God in prayer, do we have this kind of care, this kind of concern to be able to open up our lives to God's gaze? To be able to say to him, God, search me, look at me, unleash your inspection of my life and you will not find anything there that is worthy of this. Do we have that kind of concern to pursue God's holiness in such a way that we might be able to stand faultless like David in our prayers? Well, David goes on and he says, in light of the injustice that he faces, here's how he prays and we ought to follow his example and take comfort in God's anger. Take comfort in God's anger. Now, as you're writing that down or thinking about it, you say, comfort in God's anger? That does not seem right. In fact, it seems like a very odd thing to say. I would venture to say it's probably one of the less politically correct and popularly accepted things to say in a sermon these days. Nevertheless, if we're going to be faithful to God's word, that is exactly what we see David himself saying. And so we need to consider this in light of two things. Either in Christianity now we've moved on from the religion of Israel. Somehow this is not an example for us to follow. This is outdated. This is outmoded. This is barbaric. Or it's God's eternal word, not just David's prayer. And therefore there's something for us here in application for our lives today. Look at verse 6. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. David asked God to arise. It is to stand up from his throne and take action on his behalf. And he prays based on God's anger against sin. So think about this. David had hope. He took comfort and the fact that God would not allow any sin to go unpunished. Every injustice would one day be made right. There was an appointed day for judgment, David says, and that becomes the base of his, of his prayer and his hope that God will actually respond and do something. He took comfort over the fact that in righteousness, God was caused to be angered over sin. Now, again, the question is, how should that bring us comfort? Well, think about it like this. If God is not angry over sin, if there is not some final day of judgment in which all will be held accountable for what they have done, then how can we live in this world without experiencing ultimate despair? Every day, our Twitter feeds and our Facebook account and our news stations and the radio is filled with all manner of injustice and evil, sheer evil. And if there's not a day of reckoning, how can we be anything but a puddle of tears and sorrow weeping on the ground? But if there is a day appointed for judgment against such, such acts, then we have hope. We have hope not only for the future, but to pray even now for God to act. Our comfort is that God cares that there will be justice. Notice David says, the Lord judges the people. 
Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that was within me. Now, if you're for all at all familiar with the Bible, those are striking words. Those are words that most of us would never dare pray because we have been in some ways rightly programmed to pray, not according to my righteousness, not according to what I have done, but according to your mercy found in Christ. Judge me, O God. We believe rightly that Christ came lived a perfect life that we might have His righteousness counted as our own before God. And it's upon that basis that we come to Him in prayer. In fact, more than one resource immediately at these verses went to justification by faith alone to say, no, we are justified not by what we do, not by our righteousness, but by the righteousness of Christ. And that's not incorrect. However, what is the context in which David is praying? David is not making an absolute claim across the board about himself in all things. Rather, once again, on this particular point, he is asserting his innocence. The thing that Cush has accused him of doing is simply not true. And so God, David rather, says to God, judge me. Not in the sense of condemn me, what we usually think of, but rather be my judge that reveals my righteousness in this matter and vindicates me before the eyes of the people and before my enemies. Notice David is also concerned more than just about himself. In verse 9 he says, Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. David is not just concerned with himself. He's not just focused on me, 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 my problems. Rather, as he thinks about his own injustice that he has experienced, his eyes begin to lift up, his gaze begins to go across at all the injustice of the world. It, it would be astonishing to me that anyone who has any semblance of humanity left in them could not look at the videos that are coming out from Planned Parenthood and not just be enraged at the treatment of women and infants. How, how in the world can we not be so incensed and also mournful at a baby born alive who is brutalized for the, horgus, uh, the harvesting of organs for sale, for money. You say, I, I, you know, I don't want to watch those videos. <laughs> I understand, but you need to. Because you will realize that the injustices that you go through are just scratching the surface of what goes on in this world. And not just for those precious babies, but across, as God's people, your brothers and sisters around this world as young girls are harvested up by revels to be brutalized, alive, and left to deal with that, as little boys in Sunday schools across Africa are recruited and trained to be brutal soldiers, those things ought to cause us to weep and cry out, not just for ourselves, but for them. Oh God, arise and give us justice in this world and in this life. People are suffering. The righteous are suffering. The wicked must come to an end in their evil plans. Establish the way of the righteous. Even the smallest 
difficulties and slights and hindrances that we face ought to cause us not just to pray for ourselves, but to cause our gaze to lift to what is happening across the world and to pray in light of those recent and future tragedies as well. If verse 11 is right, and God is a righteous judge, a God who feels indignation every day, then that ought to drive our prayers. That gives us confidence that God is not aloof. He's not just some old man with a beard who's half asleep somewhere out in the cosmos. He is a God of righteousness who hates the wicked and their ways and desires to do something about it. We pray appealing both with comfort for ourselves and with integrity before God. God, you are a righteous God. Arise and do something for your people. And even as we take comfort in God's anger, we must also, following David's example, consider God's judgment. We must consider God's judgment. David goes on in verses 12 through 16 to to talk about what is going to happen to the wicked. What is going to happen to those whose lives are consumed by sin? What will judgment look like? And we see three pictures here. First of all, we see a personal judgment. A personal judgment. That's the way that David describes the coming judgment of God. If a man does not repent, hold that thought in your mind. We're going to come back to it in a few minutes. If a man does not repent, what that says is there is a way of escape. So even here this morning, you say, I'm not a Christian. Uh, I don't know anything about this. That, that is your lifeline right there. Hold on to it. But if a man does not repent, if a woman does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shaft. That is a terrifying picture. I mean, can, I mean, you can imagine being on the field of battle and seeing some great warrior preparing his sword, sharpening it, putting it in the sheath, then, then taking out his bow, eyeing you down setting it on fire with tar and flame and bending it back ready to launch at you. How much more, how much more Almighty God Himself. See, we understand that sin is never abstract. Sin is never just this thing out here. It's never just something that's, that's conditioned culturally as whether it's right or wrong and it may change from country to country and people to people. No, sin, true sin, is always an affront to God. Because He made us. He designed us. He created this world and He has established right and wrong. So every time we disobey His rules, we are an offense to Him. You know, one of the things that was not done well when I was growing up was the telling of the story of Noah and the flood. And thinking about this, uh, was fresh in my mind as I was driving out this week through Pennsylvania. And there was this huge, the biggest rainbow I've ever seen in my life that went from one side of the horizon up through the clouds and came down the other side. It was almost like it was cocked at an angle. So one side was really big and one side was far away. And one of the things that, you know, when talk about the rainbow, the rainbow, the rainbow, well, growing up, in my mind, a bow is something you tie with ribbon, Right? And the Bible says that the rainbow was a promise to Noah saying, and whether it happened for the first time or whether he just said from now on when you look at the sky, here's what you're going to think of, I will never judge the world by flood again. I will never wipe out humanity in that way. But the reality is, culturally, it's not a bow that you tie the ribbon. It is a bow of war. 
There's a bow that you would launch an arrow of, and God is saying, I am putting down the bow of judgment. I'm allowing you to gaze at the sky and see I will never make war on humanity in that way again. That's amazing. But a day is coming when he will pick up the bow. On the final day when we stand before God, we will be the target of his righteous indignation and anger. And there will be no stopping those arrows from penetrating our very souls. The only way of escape is through repentance and faith in Christ. We see a personal judgment. We also see a deserving judgment. A deserving judgment. If we didn't catch it in verses 12 through 13, David makes the point even more clear in verse 14. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. David says that the wicked are pregnant with sin. You know, in our culture, we, we often think of sin as being, and not just our culture, but in general, sin is something outside of us. And, and, so, and so we're not responsible really for what we've done. I hear this excuse quite a bit, sadly, but, you know, I wouldn't have done what I did if they hadn't done something to me. As if somehow being sinned against makes it okay for us to respond in sin. Now, temptation does come from without. It pelts us constantly. Like, like walking in an open field, a massive hailstorm. We're just getting hit with temptation, temptation, temptation. But ultimately, notice what does David say? Sin comes from within. It is, something, it is something that is conceived and grows and is given birth from within us. We aren't victims, at least not in the sense of our own sin. Yes, we can be victimized by the sin of others, but when we sin, we're not responding as victims. We are responding as people who are wicked. The origin of our sin is within our own hearts. So as James says, when temptation comes, we are lured away and enticed by our own desires. It's conceived in our hearts and is given birth in how we live our lives and act on those sinful desires. We can't blame anybody else for our sins. The judgment that God will pour out on the wicked is a deserved judgment. Finally, we see it's an inescapable judgment. It's an inescapable judgment. Many years ago, some of you might remember Paul Harvey and his program. Many years ago, he explained how the Inuit peoples in the north hunted wolves. They would take a very large knife and they would take it out into the snow and they would coat it with animal blood and let it freeze. And they would continue to do that over and over and over again until it had this thick coating that completely disguised the blade. They would then go out and get tools and dig a small hole in the ground and drive in the hilt uh, strongly and firmly so that this blood-soaked blade stood out from amidst the snow. Then they would go away. And when the wolves that were terrorizing their village would begin to smell that knife, or if there was more than one multiple knives, they would go and they would begin licking that blood. And it would get warm and it would begin to melt and they would begin to lap it up. And as they licked harder and harder, more fervishly, they would get down to the blade and they would cut into their own tongue. And without realizing it, they would quickly begin satisfying their hunger with their own warm blood. By morning, they would be dead in the field, ready to be thrown out or cooked for food. It's a gruesome picture, but it's exactly how sin operates. Notice what David says. The wicked makes a pit, digging it out, and then he falls into the hole that has been made. 
His mischief returns upon his head, and on his own skull, his violence descends. We say, we want what we want, want, when we want it, and there's nothing wrong with that. And God says, fine, but you're going to die because of it. That's the nature of sin. It eventually consumes us and kills us. God sometimes allows it to happen in this life. Sometimes the desires of a sinful person eat themselves up and they, they're consumed to death in the here and now. People go to prison and, and face the death penalty uh, in, in a just way. Others are just, are just killed because they've lived a life of violence and they're killed by violence. There's, there's all kinds of ways in which our judgment comes back upon us, our sin comes back like a boomerang and conks us in the head. But more than anything... What has David said? There is a day appointed for judgment. And if we do not experience some level of justice in this world because of our sin, we will not escape it before when we stand before God. Unless we repent, unless a man repents, David says, this is our end. In this very last verse, David reminds us that in all things, we must commit to, pray to God's praise. We must commit to God's praise. This is how David ends this psalm. Even in the midst of being uh, consumed with indignity at the injustice he is facing, he's not angry at God. He's not, he's not saying, I don't care about you. I don't love you. In fact, just the opposite. He says in verse 17, I will give to the Lord the thanks due his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord the Most High. David gives thanks to his God because of his righteousness in judging his enemies and defending his own own innocence. God, not his enemies, will have the final verdict on David's life. It's interesting that he calls the Lord the Most High. That is a rare title for the Lord in the Old Testament. But it first shows up when God is making his covenant with Abraham. And it's it's a title that designates his sovereignty over all things. David is saying that even in the midst of this difficulty, even in the midst of this guy seeking to kill me, God, you're still in charge, and I am committing to give you the praise that you deserve. But understand, this is not a bribe. David's not saying, if you rescue me, if you vindicate me, if you do these things for me, then I will praise you. No, it is a commitment, a statement, a promise that he will give thanks and praise. Why? Because the Lord deserves it, and because he is confident that eventually... God will vindicate him. When we consider any and all the injustice that we might experience or the rest of the God's people might experience, David gives us an example of how to respond in prayer. But here at the end, we must understand that regardless of what happens, regardless of what we see, we also can commit to God's praise because Jesus himself has suffered the ultimate injustice. Just as we were sinners with God's sword wedded and his bow bent back towards us, Christ came and stood before us. He stood in our place and he took the sword. He received the arrow of God's judgment for us on the cross. And because God loved us enough to send Christ as our substitute, because he loved his son enough to raise him back from the dead and to establish him as the shepherd, as the king, as the sovereign over his people, securing our salvation for us, our forgiveness and freedom from sin, then in this life, despite any injustice, no matter how wicked, we can commit to give God praise and thanks. For in the last day we know God has promised with the blood of his own son, we will be saved, we will be delivered, we will be vindicated 
and no justice on the last day. Father, we're so thankful for that assurance that we have in Christ. Father, we pray that as we think through this psalm, as we think through our lives and how we ought to respond, that that reality of Christ as our Savior, as the one who suffered far more indignity and injustice than we ever will in this life, has gone before us and He has experienced that for us to bring us to You. Father, may Christ be the great theme of our life and may He be the focus of our comfort and our hope in You. We pray this in His name. Amen.